0: Hello and welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Tim Rogers, and today I'm pleased to welcome Kevin Stewart. Kevin is an experienced educator and maintenance and reliability professional with 39 years of practical work experience in a variety of roles for Alcoa Primary Metals Group and Arms Reliability. At Alcoa, Kevin initially worked as a plant engineer and moved on to become the corporate reliability manager and reliability consultant for the primary metals division. After leaving Alcoa, he became the lead RCA trainer for arms reliability. In 2016, Kevin founded KPS Reliability, where he provides training in Apollo RCA methodology and consulting to organizations that are looking to establish a root cause analysis program. Kevin has a degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Washington in Seattle, and he's a licensed professional engineer. He also holds a CMRP certificate that's Certified Maintenance and Reliability Professional. Kevin, welcome and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Tim. So Kevin, I think most of our listeners by now, I hope, (laughs) have heard of root cause analysis and, and some of them may actually have some experience with RCA as well. Can you tell us about some of the more common mistakes that people make when they try to apply RCA?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, I, I'm going to say there's about uh, f- uh, four or five, let's, let's start out with four things that I think uh, most people end up having difficulty with. Uh, I think number one is the uh, you probably have you probably have remembered the, uh, the saying: "If all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail." Oh yeah. And what that what that means is that if you uh, have root cause analysis, we can solve the world's problems with that. So oh, that's not true. I'm sorry. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, we'd like to think that, but unfortunately, what I see is that people use when they get this tool, they think it can solve the world, so they use it where it shouldn't be used. I've seen people try to use it to solve all sorts of things. And I go, well, um, shouldn't you be using something like a failure modes and effects analysis on that? And they look at you kind of funny. And so uh, that is a big issue just, just to use it where it's not uh, correct. And the problem with that is if you do, then, uh, you know, you, you'll get, you won't get the best results. And then of course they blame RCA type of thing. So I always say right. when it's used appropriately, it's the right tool. It does a good job. But if uh, as anything else, if you try to use an orange to pound in a nail, it doesn't work so well. So that's one. Sometimes sometimes they'll use uh, uh, what they call SME, as you mentioned, uh, and you're as a subject matter expert for right. uh, a facilitator to do the problem. What that means is that in, you go in to do an analysis and you'll say, hey, uh, we're going to work on this this particular problem. And the gentleman that they put in, sorry, the person, I, I'm an old, old guy, so I those terminologies aren't there. That shouldn't be right. So the person that they use to do that, uh, may be from the particular area where the problem is. And unfortunately, it's not that they can't do a good job, but it's much more difficult because they have preconceived notions, understandings, sure. they may not ask the right questions and all those things. So, uh, another big problem is they use for subject matter experts as facilitators and they shouldn't, those people should just be in the, um, uh, the analysis and provide information as necessary. They um, another big one is they stop too soon. We see this all the time, especially right. in new people. Is you go down there and say, "Well, what happened?" Well, let's see. Uh, we they, we had a, a shutdown of the unit. Why? Well, because this gearbox br- broke. Okay, fine. So, what did you do? He said, "Well, we you know we fixed it." Wow, well, we replaced the, <laughs> we replaced the uh, gearbox. Well, yeah. Why did the gearbox break? why do I care? I restored flow. I'm up and running. What do I care? I went, no, you do care because if you find out that it's because you put the wrong darn lubricant in there, then guess what? That you're just going to have another failure. So you see it all the time where they don't go far enough to get to the true cause. They restore flow and that's a big problem. So stopping too soon, you never get to what, uh, another one is, is what we call, uh, I calls, a lot of people call systemic issues, which means, you know, uh, uh lack of PM and, and you could say, well, we didn't have a PM and they're great, but you need to ask one more time, why didn't you? Well, we have no program to install uh, PMs on new equipment. So uh, all of those things are related to the same thing. They just don't go far enough to truly get to a point where they can uh, address an issue to prevent it and or many other possible issues coming back, especially in the systemic side.
0: You know, Kevin, is, isn't this why they always tell us to ask the five whys?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, to some degree. However, the uh, let's not confuse that with not going too far, because even if you ask uh, five whys, which, by the way, is a, I don't want to say a mis- misnomenclature, but uh-huh. uh, if you talk to the folks that are into five whys, they'll tell you that, yeah, I know it's five, but guess what? If you can do it in three, that's okay. By the way, if you can do it in seven, that's okay. And if you can do it in 10, that's okay. Um, right. And and the problem the, the problem with not going too far is with the five whys is it's a great program but it's not for everything so if you use it in the wrong spot again that can be an issue so uh, you have to make sure you go far enough to get to a true answer and the five whys you can you could still ask five whys ten times fifteen times but the problem with that is if you start getting that far you may not ask the right questions because because five wise is not designed to be repeatable which means that you get 15 different people you're going to get you could potentially get 15 different answers so wow. uh, sure. so you got to be careful with five wise it's not a pro, it's it's a good program it's used for low consequence uh, operators engagement all those kind of issues it's fantastic but for more sophisticated problems and or things that have large consequence you got to use something different and then you still are stuck with this say so not going to not going far enough
0: you know, when you were describing the problem um, earlier, it kind of—I've heard some people refer to it as the f- fuse effect—that you're replacing a component that f- failed, but really that component was just working as a fuse. It, it was the thing that failed, but it wasn't the cause. Co- correct.
1: That would that would make a lot lot of sense. And in reality, uh, you normally associate fuses with electrical equipment. A lot of people would do that, but the concept is exactly the same. If the uh, if you put too much power in there and you bust the gearbox, it becomes the fuse. And it broke theoretically right. to prevent something else from uh, breaking. And if you fix that, a lot of times people put in a stronger gearbox. And the problem is that, <laughs> yes, you know, if you put a bigger fuse in, you just burn up your house because yeah, it's yeah. not good, I think. So the idea is to figure out what the problem is.
0: Exactly, exactly. You know, Kevin, when we talked earlier, you mentioned the work of, Win- of uh, Winston Lede at, Lu- at DuPont. Um, who uh, I guess had some kind of disappointing results when preventative maintenance was initially implemented. Um, could you could you comment could you elaborate a little more on those findings? Does root cause analysis play a role here?
1: Yes, yes, I think it does. Um, he, he didn't have so much um, he, he did talk about PM uh, um, at DuPont. It all bore out of the uh, Nolan and Heap study from United. A lot of reliability folks would recognize that, where they <clears throat> they did some work with airplanes and they said uh, they found out if they did more PMs, they had less crashes. That was good. So they said, "Great, PM equals good." So they did more. Well, crashes went up. Mm. Uh, so they found out that that was a big issue with PMs. The the Winston Liday folks looked at the overall strategy that they put together and it was a uh, Lede and Peche were the two people and they were DuPont, they did a study and they started looking at it and they said, well, you know, what's going on here? What if we do more of this, less of that? So they, they looked and they said, if we, do, if we do scheduling only, they got a 1% increase in their output from the basis mm. of reactive maintenance. If they did planning only, they got a 1% increase. Surprisingly enough, if they did PM and PDM only, they got a 3% decrease.
0: <laughs>
1: mm. I believe for the same reason that you, you talk about that, more PM is not necessarily the best. Got it. Uh, and then what happened was they said, well, what's going on here? What if we put all three together? They got a, gr- a whopping 5% increase in their output from uh, the, the systems. But then they came in and said, what if we add uh, defect elimination or another term would be the root cause analysis. What happens? Well, they found out they got a 20% increase. Wow. And the, and we are just working with clients uh, right now where I think a little bit of a, a little bit of an understanding might be appropriate because people are going, what do you mean? Well, we just did some RCAs. We call them a, or five whys on some issues. And the three right. top issues they pointed out, they said, here's the issues that are, are killing us on this particular piece of equipment. I said, what are they? We, we looked at them. I said, well, let's talk about them. And all three of them would never have been fixed by adjusting your PM program or including this or doing something like that they all needed a redesign or a process change in order for you sure. to eliminate. And those three there were the highest, they caused the highest total downtime in that particular equipment. So the concept of defect elimination works in, in integration with all of the other things you have to do, the, the planning, scheduling PM and all that, but you have to couple it with this uh, defect elimination in some form or another, because Otherwise, you're never going to achieve the values because some of the things don't have anything to do with that program. You don't want to be just efficient at doing bad maintenance. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Also, it seems like a lot of times preventative maintenance is just, it's, we're just following the schedule instead of really looking at, at uh, failure modes, right. you know? Absolutely. And I,
1: I think I've mentioned before, maybe I didn't, but, uh, you know, you can make the case that says that, uh, so fine, I go in and I, I replace a bearing every year and I never have unplanned maintenance. Nobody ever knows anything. Everything's going fine. We're happy as a clam. And this has actually happened to me when we go and do a little looking at it, you find out that you should. You should, be replaced, you should be replacing that bearing every eight years. So here wow. I am being very good at schedule and plan maintenance, but my costs aren't going down the way they should because I'm, I'm you not doing the defect elimination that says I'm
0: not running the way it should be. That makes a lot of sense. You know, Kevin, I've had a chance to, to lead some root cause analysis investigations of my own. And I find that, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, this leads to some f- finger pointing or some blaming. People start uh, looking for someone to blame for the failure instead of, uh, you know, trying to look for uh, other other reasons. Uh, do you have any advice for quality and reliability engineers who want to f- focus on solving the problem instead of looking for somebody to blame?
1: Uh, I think so. Um, I can tell you, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's just, it's pervasive. You can keep the, uh, I can't remember where I saw it. I, th- I think it was a movie with Sean Connery, but it was uh, I remember the, I remember it it said fix the problem and not to blame and so yep. you, if you keep that phrase in your mind it will help you and some of the other things that go along with that um, there is some data out there it's just uh, uh, small like 0.6 percent of the u.s population don't know the rules. And it's even less in business. And what that means is that people do not get up in the morning and say, you know what? I'm going to screw up today. I'm going to do something. Wrong. I'm gonna, I don't want to be safe. That's just not what happens. So I agree. if it's that small, do not look for that to start with. I'm not saying mm. that it doesn't exist. I'm just Good saying point. that don't start out looking for it. Look instead of uh, the terminology that we use is error of uh, action. Hmm. Error of intent is I got up this morning, I said, you know, I'm going to take a sledgehammer and beat my car up. Error of intent. Error of action says they get up in the morning, they're going to try to do the best they can, but they are but they have a lack of skills, knowledge, yep. understanding, uh or lack of uh, a memory lapse or something like that. So there's a cause for that. So you would not blame somebody for having a bad day. I always, I use the, the phrase, I've heard that before, you know, let those among you who have not screwed up, you know, be the first ones to cast a stone. So <laughs> right.
0: uh, Something about living in, in glass houses. Yeah. Right. Right.
1: So when you're doing this, you have to keep that phrase and think about the fact that it, that, that may happen, but don't look for it. If you continue to look for the causes, uh, which are not, you know, uh, uh the error of intent, right. then you'll you'll get to a point where you can uh, accomplish your goals. I've had a couple of clients say that uh, the other problem that you're going to have is that if you do that, your program goes to heck in a handbasket. And I had a client <laughs> a client come up one time says, "Yeah, we had a situation where you know we had a tank and and it was full of pure water. And if you look in the tank, you were supposed to see it was empty, but the water was so clear you couldn't actually see the level." So some guy looks in, thought it was empty, wasn't screwed up the batch. They then did a RCA and they identified this issue and they said, yeah, I did it. Then they fired the guy. Well, well, uh, guess what? Nobody in the facility ever wanted to help them again with an RCA because who among you would say, yeah, would you mind helping me fire you? No, nobody's going to do that. So, yeah, you got to be very careful about that uh, and your program will die on the vine. And once in a while. Uh, the statistically you may find somebody but but that's an exception
0: you know I really like the way you put it um I, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning wanting to do a bad job at least that's my starting point um and and I also like what you said about um, uh, checking for things like understanding did did you understand did we communicate effectively do you have the proper training to do what's necessary um uh, you know that, that's a th- those are i think smarter places to st- start when you're trying to address a problem like this?
1: Yeah. Human factors studies, uh, I'm not an expert in that field, but I know enough to be extremely dangerous, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> but human factors would say that if you're, if you've, I, I'm going to mess up some of the numbers, so, so help me with that. But uh, if you do a task all the time, you, you probably aren't going to, the risk of making a mistake is very it gets low and low. And if you do it once in a while, the risk goes up and you could do some things about that. But if you're in what's called, uh, I think one of the, the, uh, trainings that I got called it the knowledge mode. If you're in the knowledge mode, meaning hmm. you walk up to something and you go, Hmm, i never seen this before. I wonder what I should do. The odds are that something's going to happen. And I, I can, there's all sorts of stories about that where they do the best they can, but they push the wrong button <laughs> and, and yeah. all heck breaks loose. And so, um, you just have to be aware of that. That that uh, if you know where everybody is and what they did, they tried to do the right thing. But why would I? Why would I chastise the guy because he tried to do what it wasn't? He didn't have the proper training. But the place is on fire, and uh, you know that's what we got to do.
0: You know, Kevin, I, it, it occurs to me that maybe sometimes the problem is the culture or the. Uh, uh, just to kind of the, the way the organization works. I mean, we, we read all the time about quality problems at, at major corporations. Uh, just look at, uh, I don't know, Volkswagen and the em- emissions uh, test results. Um, what kind of culture, what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of um, uh, mechanisms are there for rewarding the proper performance versus, you know, punishing the wrong performance?
1: The... That's an interesting question and a a comment. And then we see it all the time in industry, I believe. And uh, maybe some of the listeners will uh, identify with that is uh, the the scenario is you go out there and uh, a piece of equipment breaks. So what happens is uh, in the old days, and maybe even sometimes now, if you're in a reactive virus, some guy swings in, you've probably seen the the picture, swings in, he's got his Tarzan uh, leotard on, and Mm, swings in, drops in, then he pushes a few buttons, he does this, he grabs parts from his uh, locker, and he fixes the thing, and everything's great. And uh, what happens? Well, what happens is the plant manager and everybody comes down, pats him on the back, says, great job. We appreciate it. You know, you saved us all sorts of money and all that. Whereas, interestingly enough, I always used to look at that and I'd see it in our plants and I'd go, that's kind of interesting because you should be saying, I appreciate the work, but you know what? I really want to know why we had to do that because that is not the right thing to be doing.
0: Yep. We reward the uh, firefighting instead of rewarding f- fire prevention. Right. right. So we drive that behavior
1: and, and it's, it's not hard to do the other way. But the culture, if you have the culture of driving that, that uh, Tarzan thing, then, then you shouldn't expect to get anything different. That's what everybody likes. And because of that, it's driven everybody to enjoy that. They get their satisfaction out of that. That's a problem mm. when you move into high reliable systems because people then go, I don't, I don't get that. Nobody ever comes and says, "Good job for finding out what the failure mode was on that and right. you know, and preventing right. it from happening for the next twenty years." They they never say that. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I used to tell the reliability engineers that reported me for a while. I used to say that the problem is going to be one of these days, plant manager is going to come in and say, "I'm letting all you go because the plants running just fine. I don't need you."
0: That's right. <laughs> so yeah,
1: you go, what? Well, that's a reward, isn't it? <laughs>
0: It is actually a paradox of working in quality. That if you do your job well, then um, you can can work yourself out of a job. Yeah, I, I, uh, I somebody came by one time when I was doing some work, and it was a pl- it was a department
1: head, and, and I did I did a double take, and I came up and says, "Are you aware of what I'm doing?" He said, "No," and I said, "Well, let me explain to you." And what I was doing was uh, the last time they did that job, it took them a week, and I, we were going to get ready to do it in three shifts because we had done all this free work and reliability work and stuff. And I said, I just want you to know, I said, you, you would never know about this if I didn't tell you. So I, I learned from that, that you must, if you want to call it advertisement, because I just don't know.
0: Good point. Hey, Kevin, I'm going to shift gears on you a little bit here. Um, One of the other things that we talked earlier about was reliability program strategy development. Can you, uh, can you explain to our listeners what reliability program strategy is? And maybe can you give an example also? Yeah. The, um,
1: you know, the Ascendo site is a great one for uh, reliability uh, programs, uh, strategy, etc. There's a lot of good work. And some of the folks on there have done some uh, super work when it gets to uh, uh, literally the getting down into the nitty gritty about that. I- I'm kind of talking at a higher level in the sense of uh, if I don't know where I'm going, I may end up I may not end up there, or may end up a different spot. So, uh, the the strategy kind of thing that I think is important is just to say, you know, what are we going to do? When are we going to do it? What order should we do it in? Uh, and and as a, an example, we went out uh, to an area and they were having all sorts of problems. So we we put together some ideas and we did a bunch of things. We fixed a lot of problems. Uh, the area got really better, and it worked really well. Um, uh, but we didn't write down what we we're going to do. And I, I remember thinking to myself when we went to the next area, I said, geez, whatever we did there worked. Uh, and so we came back and said, you know, what did we do? So we wrote down the things we did in the order we did them in and then started talking about, well, shouldn't we move this around a little bit because of these issues? We had things like mm-hmm. if, we did, if we didn't do problem uh, defect elimination before we did planning and scheduling, everybody got frustrated because hmm. they're having failures all the time. So we developed a 10 step plan and said, fine, do them in these order, develop, uh, put a cross-functional group in, establish measurement systems, do the basic PMs to some degree, then then initiate some RCAs right off the bat. Uh, then we said, fine, now that you got all that done, now I got to make sure my CMS is up and running. Um, then start talking about PDM, uh, in, incorporating that into the whole system, And then we're going to do uh then we're going to follow up with TPM. And each one of these things had a, there was a reason for doing it. That reason when I tried to do TPM at the very beginning of this 10 step program, everybody's looking at me like crazy. They were arguing. They were, you know, no, it won't work. Uh, Mechanics were screaming because they're going to take their jobs away. And it was just like, Oh my God. So we, when we finally got down to steps uh, had done all the other issues up to that point, Hmm. I found it interesting because the, uh, the operations folks and the maintenance folks started coming to me and says, you know, we ought to revisit this TPM thing because there's a lot of good things they could do. So it told you that there was an order and a proper time to do these mm-hmm. in order to get them got done it. effectively. Uh, the the last one was to uh, not last one, but next to last establish RCA as a way of thinking. You do that defect elimination, but you still have to put in place a program that says, okay, now that we got all that done, we're going to have fewer of these issues, but we still have to have a process that allows us to continue to, to do those things. So the kind of, uh, the kind of strategy I'm talking about is that scenario that says, when we applied this, we looked at that and said, you know, I think I can take this in. If I got an area that's going bad, I think I can apply this strategy and get to where I want to go a lot faster without having to wonder, make mistakes, missteps, try to put things in the right place, uh, the wrong place at the wrong time type of thing. So that's what I'm talking about. When I, when I mention strategy, I think that's the appropriate way and everybody should have some Something like that, whether it's your own development or uh, take advantage of somebody who's already uh, done that, can help you get one quickly.
0: So the the benefits of having a strategy as opposed to just solving one problem at a time, it sounds like you can move through the process a lot more quickly. Um, so it sounds like it's a lot more effective, also.
1: I would agree. Uh, even though my even though one of my uh, mantras is. Uh, improving reliability by solving one problem at a time. The, there's, 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 two, there's two different things going on there because if you're, if you're doing one problem at a time and, and just go around that methodology, that's, you know, that's going to slow you up. And I'm working with a client now that's, uh, that we're trying to do that so you, you can do some things. But the, the way I perceive that one problem at a time is uh, when you do work on a problem, you have to finish it to the point where it's done. Many people start going off on a tangent and try to do a hundred problems. And I always tell everybody, I said, no, 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 we're staying on, we're staying focused on one to three problems. And we're going to get those dealt with before we add something to that. So uh, uh, it's the whole point of doing a Pareto analysis, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. I missed the, uh, the first part. You say no, no sense in doing one.
0: No, no. I'm saying that is the whole point of doing a Pareto analysis. Correct. We want to prioritize our work, right? right? We yeah. do
1: want to prioritize our work, but at the very beginning, and I'm a big fan of that. You need to do that and you need to know where that is. Sometimes you want to find the specific problem. Sometimes you want to know the Pareto to find what area to work on, some more of a category. Um, so either way it works. I've also done it where in the very beginning, the Pareto analysis, you can make all sorts of steps of discussions around that. That might be a good way to start. But I've had people say, oh, you got to do a Pareto analysis. And if, if I got stuff falling down around my uh, my ankles, I'm going, no. Right now, I just got to fix stuff, so uh, I I can fix a ton of problems, small problems, in a very short period of time. Where somebody else is going to say, "Oh yeah, I took a month and Pareto'd it out," and I'm going, "Jeez, I've just solved 20 problems in the month." So <laughs> uh, you know, now, when I solve some problems, then I can come back and start saying, "I get a breathing room. I can do the Pareto, and that's the right thing to do to make sure I know where to go and all those kind of issues." So there's there's kind of two options, uh, the way or two ways to look at that.
0: But it really, it seems like your primary message is you need to have a methodology that you, you know, we we say we're committed to continuous improvement, and that includes continuous improvement in how we approach reliability problems.
1: Yes, uh, I would agree 100% on that. That's exactly what it is. You just, you you jump in there without some kind of concept and uh, you never know where you're going to end up.
0: Kevin, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. Uh, thank you very much.
0: So that was Kevin Stewart, president of KPS Reliability, LLC. For more information, please go to kpsreliability.com or join the conversation at his blog on the same location. This is Tim Rogers. But thanks very much for joining us.